welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. Today, Phil and I are happy to give you our conversation with Michael Garfield, which took place just a few weeks ago. Many listeners of Weird Studies will be familiar with Michael and his work. Um, He's an artist, uh, musician, uh, psychonaut, essayist, podcaster. He's the host of the Future Fossils podcast, which I've had the honor to appear on on a couple of occasions. Michael is a real seeker. Um, I got to know his work when we were both writing at Reality Sandwich, and uh, I was immediately struck by his intelligence and his charm, and most importantly, perhaps, his willingness to think dangerous thoughts and to draw on science, philosophy, art, and psychedelics to try to make some novel sense of our world and our times. For instance, over the last few years, Michael's been working out an idea of our historical epoch um, that I think is really interesting. He calls it the glass age. So if you think of history as being divided into these vast eras, for example, like from the Stone Age to the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, well, Michael's insight, and I think it's a valid one, is that modernity, you know, the modern age that begins around the time of the Renaissance that is continuing to unfold right now, is defined by glass um, from the test tubes of the alchemists and the first lenses that Galileo used to observe the celestial spheres all the way up to today with silicon and fiber optics and the ubiquity of screens. You can really think of glass as the, the basic material out of which we've constructed the modern world. So Phil and I talked about this, and we were kind of stoked to have Michael come on and talk about the Glass Age, what it means, uh, what it implies for us, what it tells us about human nature and human destiny. Yeah, so he came on, we had a great discussion, and well, here goes. Let's not pretend that we didn't do this already. So, yeah, <laughs> started by, you know, full disclosure that we've the three of us have already I think we talked for a good 2 hours and then uh by some freak accident the recording was lost. We'll just leave it at that. I appreciate the fact that you used the passive voice there, JF. Right. Uh, the truth is that I deleted <laughs> the recording. That's on me. Well, no, cuz we recorded on each end so that we could get clear mm-hmm. audio from everybody without, you know, cell right. like line glitch. And then you deleted your end on accident. And then I deleted mine on accident also. So it was not right. 
It, it was it was just not meant to be. But for but for a call about how the future acts like you, I immediately had to appreciate the poetry of having to do the same call over again. Right. You know, it's like here we are acting like us. So right. there you, yeah. Um, but in in the interim, like since we recorded that, you've you tweeted a thread about the glass age, mm-hmm. um, and and then chatting on Twitter, we agreed that we'd want to explore that idea, which I think is fantastic. I just think it's a powerful, powerful idea. And so this conversation will take a different form. We're not going to try to reproduce what we've already done. I, I guess we'll dive in with that and then see where that leads us. Does that sound good? Perfect. Yeah. All right. So. To begin, why don't you start by telling us what you mean when you say, and you've said it in essays, you've said it on Twitter, you've said it in conversation with me on Future Fossils, I think. Uh, What do you mean when you say that we live in a glass age? So I had this thought uh, around 2013 when I was a beta tester for Google Glass. I was trying to think about how to write a piece of a series of essays about my experience with augmented reality. And one of the definitive features of that device, which stuck out for me, was the little prism that allows a screen to be projected into your field of view as a heads up display. And that this little glass piece was like the essential piece to living in a world where data is overlaid my vision and and my hearing and my environment. And then I started thinking, oh, my God, well, my, my buddy, David Titterington, who's been on Future Fossils, and uh, I think maybe I've connected the two of you online because he's a big fan of your book, JF. He, he teaches art and he, te- he was in school at the time studying material philosophy, specifically like stone and how stone or wood works on consciousness, why we have sacred stones, why different kinds of landscapes lead to different kinds of religions. And so the the agency of materials, I started thinking about how really the modern era started with Isaac Newton discovering that the prism can take white light and open it up into a rainbow. And that, you know, what, what Richard Dawkins, I think it was pointing back to Keats, talked about uh, his book, Unweaving the Rainbow, about how science makes the magical even more magical by demystifying it. And so he imposes this sort of modern version of magic just being wonder, you know, and that things are more wonderful when we can take them apart. And, you know, then Richard Doyle in his book On On Beyond Living talks about the lab animal Canoribditis elegans, which is C. elegans, which is the roundworm that has, I think, like 956 cells in its body. And we know what every one of them does. And we know where they all move in the development of the worm. And it's the worm that sort of launched as a lab creature, the field of genomics and like modern molecular biology. And the idea that this transparent worm, this, this like glass worm, it allowed us to believe that the body itself would become transparent to the devices of science and that there was no Elon Vital, that there is no magical life thing, that there is no magic in the rainbow, that we can take this whole thing apart, we can understand it molecule by molecule, is the central conceit of 20th century biology. So like on one end of the worms, so to speak, and on the other, you have this continuous narrative through the last several hundred years of people using glass to scrutinize the mysteries of the cosmos, whether it's, you know, microscope, telescope. And then we're in this age now where 
everything that made the human special in sort of the early enlightenment, you know, this idea of a, a, a rational actor with a liberal sort of core values, you know, that this notion that the soul is somehow discrete or distinct from the, the body has been totally digested and dissolved by this like Stanford Research Institute cybernetics view of the self as merely the sort of sum of its inputs or like an emergent thing at the nexus of those inputs. And we live in a space where the screens that we're using, the chips that are processing the data that ends up on those screens, the fiber optic cable sending information to those chips, the you know the actual buildings that we're inhabiting while we're looking at these screens, like all of the relevant features of the modern world are glass or you know they're made out of glass and there is something in the material agency of glass that seems to be at work behind you know everything from living in a glass house you know the panopticon of mon of surveillance to you know understanding glass as a molten substance that does in fact flow s slower than we understand it and so that there's this i feel like that's an entry point for understanding this at a deeper level that you know that this sort of perfect knowledge or perfect control is itself like fluid and, and metamorphic so that's the basic gist of of it science equals glass and you know mod modernity equals glass and that this is nowhere more obvious than in the crystal palace exhibition of 1851 where they take the entire park in london and encase it in a glass building you know, as if to say the you know, the crystal spheres of the heavens are now ours. We encase the earth in crystal, not God, you know. Right. Reason. Reason encases the earth and reason is found inside human minds. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. But it's literally right. the invisible environment of modernity. Right. Absolutely. I think it's a brilliant thought. And it's true. And then and then on Twitter we we're talking about it and we realized or I mean it came, it occurred to me and I'm sure it occurred to you before because I read it in your the other essay you, you gave us to read. I mean, if you really want to trace back the earliest stirrings of modernity in the Middle Ages, you can find it in the gla in glassworks and in innovations in glassworks from the stained glass and then the transparent glass of the alchemists that allowed for the development of modern uh, optical lenses and, and the role of, of glass in Galileo's discoveries uh, astronomically. And then also, so there's this idea of the diaphanous nature of glass. It's a solid, as you write, it's a solid you don't know exists until it breaks. It's transparent, and yet it's solid, and it's a perfect symbol for how we view matter in modern times. Solidity is a state of matter, and therefore it's caught up in time. Something is only solid now, you know, or solid at this scale. So this idea of the total translucency or diaphany of matter is coded into the symbol of glass. I was thinking about this this morning, and you think about someone like Spinoza. I mean, Spinoza was a lens maker. That was his job, his day job. And the ethics, if you read the ethics, which is actually not a book, well, it is a book of ethics, but it's first and foremost a book of very intense metaphysics, is that his picture of the universe is nothing if not crystalline. That's kind of the quality of his universe. Mind and matter or thought and extension are perfectly reflected in a one-to-one -one relation. Everything that exists has a kind of uh, mental and physical nodular existence, and they reflect themselves perfectly. And the single substance is almost kind of like the diaphanous space in which everything reflects everything else, right? You can find that also in Leibniz. Like, it's, it's just such a powerful 
thing, this the idea, this idea of the glass age. And it really does distinguish modern times from the Iron Age or the Bronze Age. I mean, I don't know how far historically or, or you know, technically you could take it, but I, I think you could go some ways because glass really does seem to define modern times and on multiple levels. I basically came up with this on my own, but then over the last five years, as I have been uh, digging into it more, you know, I think it was like two years ago, Corning, the huge glass company, actually put out a video, like after I had started writing about this, called The Glass Age. Where oh, the, I just watched that this yeah, morning. Yeah, the two yeah, guys here. From, from Mythbusters basically did this like propaganda for glass, where it was like talking about how this isn't just the glass you know, it's everything. It's in the walls, it's in the, you know, there, there's ceramic glass and metal glass hybrids that are ending up in all sorts of stuff. And the fibers, even the glass fibers are ending up in clothing. And it's, you know, when I think about it over the last couple of years, talking with people about post-modernity and about the so-called hyper-modernity, I don't, I don't know that I actually really accept either of those now that I think about these things in terms of geological timescales that I think that looking back on the 21st century through like maybe the 15th century that it's I mean we'll recognize distinctions in there but from another 500 or thousand years hence will that age seem as exponential and and uh, rapidly changing like maybe two to five thousand BC mark you know like I don't know exactly where the Iron Age starts and ends, but like clearly there was like a massive evolution of our ability to work iron in that time and of like what the right. consequences to society you know, and civilization in general had in that time. And yet I think like you can fold all of these modifiers of modernity, post-modernity, post-post-modernity, hyper-modernity, meta-modernity. They're all modifiers of this thing that we are still using primarily to define ourselves by you know and yeah. i think that like really we're not going to move into a truly postmodern era until we move beyond the materiality of glass like the idea that all of our biotech research is happening in glass test tubes you know and so it's like really only when the bioware leaps out of the test tube and into the wild and we're primarily doing our biopunk shenanigans like in vivo rather in, in in living systems and not just in glass little containers that try to perfectly model these systems that's when we're that's when the glass age is over you know as far as i'm concerned well then it's over the uh, minute it seems like sorry sorry go on but i was just gonna take the opportunity to bust out my cynical definition of postmodernism or mm. postmodernity, which is uh, a series of attempts from within modernity to imagine a space outside of it right <laughs> it's so true phil and i share a kind of like anti-historicist orientation in some cases i mean this is one case where i find that this obsession with naming each generation and distinguishing it from what came before is itself a sign that we're still just modern <laughs> you know <laughs> Uh, I think Charles Taylor writes about that. You know, it's part of the romantic program to uh, deny and negate romanticism with each new generation because romanticism is about the individual, the new, and, and, and so it's going to rename itself, but its ethos remains the same throughout. And it seems like... Well, the ethos yeah. seems to be so much born from, like, this very modern 
pattern of self-questioning. Right. Who am I really? Like, what kind of person am I as compared to all these other different kinds of persons, different subcultures and uh, identities that I could conceivably think of myself as? You think about the romantics. I think about them, perhaps this is something that Taylor is on about. It's a little bit like the beat writers, uh, Kerouac, Ginsburg, etc. One of the things that always seems to me to be remarkable about them is how much they are trying to grasp their own life Right. Even as it's happening to them. Yeah. Like, you know, it's sort of like thinking of themselves always in already mythic terms. Through, as, um, as if they're watching themselves through a glass. As if they're watching exactly. that was, in a mirror. That was where I was going with that. Right, yeah. Right, right. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Sartre wrote an essay on Baudelaire where he basically says that Baudelaire invented that modern ethos or is the, the exemplar of it, of the artist who is only aware of himself. So Baudelaire would have an experience, like he would go and, and meet with, a, you know, a sex worker at the time, <laughs> recall different things, you know, or he would like uh, have this crazy opium experience. I don't know what Baudelaire did for fun, but he'd, he'd have this crazy <laughs> peak experience and then he would, he could only see himself having it. He couldn't actually be in the moment and he, he couldn't get out of that. And Sartre connects that to the modern condition. And uh, so I think there's something about that. And again, the metaphor of glass works on that level as well, because it's the looking glass. Well, and postmodernism is just sort of like, I'm totally not thinking that way. I'm totally not thinking that way. I'm not <laughs> defining who I am. Oh, shit, I did it again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. It's uh... Well, I mean, it's because it's I'm not the guy in the mirror. Right. So yeah. like yeah. again, again, back <laughs> yeah. to glass, like one of the things you talking about this reminds me of the psychology experiment that I read about a couple years ago while I was gathering notes. I'm always, I'm still gathering notes on this. I feel like this is sort of where we pre-articulate a thesis here. But so at any rate, the piece was that they took people, put them in VR helmets, put a camera about 10 feet behind them and fed the camera feed into the VR viewer. So people were just in these helmets looking at themselves from behind and it induces an out of an out of body experience, right? Yeah. So I think that this dual platform identity, which is what Martine Rothblatt calls it in her book Virtually Human, when she's talking about uh, leaving a trace fossil of ourselves online, which we talked about in the infamous Lost podcast, right? Because everything you do on the web creates this reflection of yourself that is then used by AI and commercial interests to create a a believable emulation of you that they can then use to model your mind and sell you things. And that as we complete the humanitarian revolution of data ownership that we're currently going through, that version of you is going to become more and more accessible to you. And this digital familiar that is a copy of you or a recording of you in some sense but that will have its own sort of emergent intelligence and it can enter into a conversation with you, can act for you as uh, a proxy, an economic and political conversational proxy, that this is going to become a, a fairly normal part of the human experience for probably billions of people over the next you know couple decades. And that is really the fulfillment or consummation of the mystical superstition that took root in people when we invented the glass mirror. This notion that this person on the other side of it can actually come out 
of the mirror somehow and interact in your world and can like step out and like smother you in your sleep and like take over and sleep with your wife and like you know all of these the weird superstitions and fears that we get through the uncanny effect of mirroring yourself is like ubiquitous in an age of total surveillance but that does, does that make the superstition real <laughs> or it's like if we all set up the world that people who walk under ladders would be secretly shot by snipers later on in the day then we could say <laughs> see it's true you shouldn't walk under ladders the idea that we've created a, a hall of mirrors and then choose to see the world that way in a sense it's funny but i i will just disclose that i think that this whole thing is kind of profoundly unreal and that what we're doing is we're creating models that we then take to be real and it's becoming increasingly hard to distinguish models from reality in an age that is as ensconced in representationalism and in well well so i mean to that point though john david ebert michael aaron cammons and and that crew the people you know the hyper moderns even though I, i sort of count myself among them that's also my internal critique which is that their thesis that we're moving the platform of the soul from the analog into the digital. Like I know you and I have talked about this on, on future fossils. It's like you never really push so far into one that you can get away from the other. And also like you're saying, it's a uh, representationalist delusion. I think to some extent, no matter how good a recording we can make of you know, the soul, like John C. Wright talks about this in his book, The Golden Age, a noumenal recording, you know, that we, we figure it out or machines figure it out for us. How do you record somebody's aura? And they do it. And it's like, well, even then they still have like the prime and then all of its copies, you know, secundus, tertius, etc. The person, mm-hmm. the person who's not the copy still has legal authority, you know? Right, right. You know, this reminded me of something you wrote in... The, the bit of writing that's not published online, there was a, a chunk of writing that you cut and pasted into an email that you sent to us. Yeah, the future is indistinguishable from magic. The future is indistinguishable from magic. Okay, so that's, that's what we'll call that. Um, love that piece. One of the things you said right at the beginning, this caught my eye. You write, I'm asking for consent to speak the thing the ideology of progress won't allow us to admit. As we grow up and see our parents as immortals that they are, so also are the gods made weak just as we recognize that we are they. And none of this is as it seemed like it would be in the commercials. Nice bit of writing. Um, And I loved it because one of the things, there's a kind of an interesting thing happens when we try to imagine the future and we imagine progress. I don't know. I won't say we. I'll just say me. I, I imagine the future as being like progress like a version of me but like without all of the many things i don't like now (laughs) um what i'm taking from your idea of like what happens when we get there what happens when we find ourselves in the future with who knows what kind of technological enhancements who knows what it looks like on the other end of the singularity whatever but somehow we're going to imagine that it'll be in some fundamental way different from what it is now maybe it'll be terrible or maybe it'll be awesome but I kind of like the idea of, uh, well, as Biggie Smalls put it, mo money, mo problems, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, or, you know, it, it's like the development of new technologies to become as gods, to put on 
these godlike prostheses that we're able to imagine for ourselves isn't going to spell the end to our problems. It'll just be the beginning of a whole bunch of other problems. And I love that you'd name check like parents and thinking about how when you're a kid, the godlike power of your parents, you think of your parents as being sort of like gods. And then you get to that point yourself. Well, how does it feel to be a god? You know, it's just a lot of shit I got to deal with, right? <laughs> it's just, it's, just yeah. it's a hassle. It's a pain in the ass. There's this sort of weird thing that you're always growing. You're always getting bigger and yet finding yourself in the same relative position vis-a-vis -vis the horizon and objects around you. It reminds me, though, just to take it in a slightly fantasy sort of direction, one of my all-time favorite novels, John Crowley's Little Big. You ever read that? No, I haven't. Oh, I, I love it. Spoil it for me. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, I'm going to spoil it for you. It's a long, shambling novel that takes place in this sort of rural estate in upstate New York. And it turns out that this estate is very special because it's uh, surrounded by a wood that's a domain of fairy. It's where fairies live. And the deal is, and we don't realize this until the end of the book, that the people who live on that estate, a family called the Drinkwaters, they're fated to become the fairies themselves. That reality is chambered like a nautilus shell. Of course it is. In infinitely inwards. And there's a certain time where all the fairies have to move one cell inwards. And the spaces that they have vacated have to be occupied by human beings. And so the people we've gotten to know in this novel, where the novel ends... Oh, oh shit. shit. <laughs> Those there fucking fairies. Uh, <laughs> where the novel ends is the human characters we've gotten to know, they just move one inwards. And they don't even really realize what's happened, but they just, they become fair folk. Right. But it's funny because one of them in particular, he doesn't really realize the transformation happens. He just notices that there's a lamb that's gotten separated from the sheepfold and he has to carry it back to what's now this enchanted cottage. And he's just like, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And it, so, you know, I read the way you framed this piece and it just reminded me of that. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah, actually. And that's a beautiful example, actually. For me, I think of in Aladdin, the Disney Aladdin, right, mm -hmm. where Robin Williams as the genie says, you know, vast cosmic powers, itty bitty little container. And then at the end of the movie, <laughs> they pull the bait and switch on Jafar. He wants to, the power of the genie. So they trick him into becoming the genie and he gets stuck in the lamp. You know, so that's where we are, right? That's what's happened. We have all of this vast cosmic power. Like, you know, you think of, to, again, the Palantir in Lord of the Rings, which, you know, I talk mm. about how, like, Google is sort of like the Palantir, right? Um, uh, define it for... for oh, the, the Palantir yeah. is Saruman's magical orb. It's the crystal ball that he can see the entire kingdom of Middle-earth through. So it's, And interestingly, it's, just to interject, I'll let you... Just interestingly, yeah. it also enables him to transform himself from Saruman the White to Saruman of the Many Colors, which is a direct reference to the prism and the, the refraction. Oh, I had forgotten yeah. that point. So, yes. And incidentally... I played a concert with a Google Glass augmenting the show so that I, I was projecting my own point of view onto the stage and the, everyone could see what I was seeing on Carl Jung's birthday, July 26th, 2013, which was the end of uh, Jose Arguelles' dream spell calendar, incidentally. Yeah. <laughs> so I took the recording of that show 
and I modded the cover of Dark Side of the Moon with the prism, the iconic prism logo, and made the prism-shaped A from the Google Glass logo just hmm. to, you know, just to like rub that little nexus of prism-y goodness in there a little bit more. But so at any rate, yeah, <laughs> Bill Thompson talks about this in the Lindisfarne tapes where he's talking about the gods want to be mortal because they don't experience the same kind of limitation. Like it's reciprocal, you know, which is a little different from the Nautilus shell version. But this notion that what we have, they lack, you know, and that it's not just an expansion that in, in the movement into the transhuman, that we lose the merely human, you know, or that in our negotiations of moving beyond what we think of as human and into what we think of as transhuman, the question arises, is there a way to attain godlike powers without losing what it means, like losing everything worthwhile about the human experience, you know? And, right. and, and you get into that with uh, Timothy Morton writing in Hyperobjects, talking about how the informational transparency afforded to us by what he does not call the glass age but nonetheless that we become aware of these vast intricate impossibly daunting phenomena like global warming that collapse the human experience background and foreground into this sort of single plane and that everything background and foreground ends up in the mirror that we're looking at and there is no periphery anymore and his point with that basically is that in that space, we sort of lose our categorical fix on living and dead, that we know that the withdrawn back end of the object that we cannot know includes our own body. And so our own body, you know, becomes as dead as a coffee mug becomes sort of like mysterious and alive in this new space. Yeah. Or and as so, Eugene, Eugene Thacker puts it differently, a similar thought differently um, in a, an essay I read where he says, um, everything human reveals itself to be but an instance of the unhuman. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, like the back, the, the hidden back end, the hidden thing in itself, which in speculative realism is accessible in theory. There's nothing that's f- totally cut off. It's just that perspectively we can't access the full object or cognitively we can't process the full object but we know it's there so and we know that that's true of our own bodies so that everything recedes into an abyss this to me is a a a real challenge to some of the tenets of the glass age this type of speculative realism i find although it still uses the same instruments because one of the things that have defined the glass age throughout its history it's its luminosity the only thing that remains opaque in the glass age, uh, and that's for our own sanity, thanks to Kant, is the subject. The subject remains opaque and dark and unknowable, but present and, uh, and essential. But what happens is that with speculative realism, it seems like the whole world regains its shadows, like the luminosity. We start to see the shadows cast by all this rational light. And we can sense the, sh- the shadows are overwhelmingly huge and they're, they just expand everywhere. And all of a sudden the world becomes less and less knowable thanks to our knowledge. Like we right. know it's unknowable. Right. That to me so, is the beautiful thing. So the yeah. apotheosis of the Glass Age is Apollo 11, right? Planting a flag on the, on the moon. The moon, which is this timeless, romantic, mystical, feminine 
thing, right? Like the right. it is inherently changing and, and unknowable in exactly the ways modernity is like, nope, planting a flag on it. Yeah. <laughs> but then of course the Apollo missions are where you look down on Earth and you see Earth for an object with a light side and a dark side and you get the you know, the big blue ball, Stuart Brand famous, you know, whole Earth catalog image. The other piece of it, though, is that that's when you get the dark side of the moon. Like we actually travel around and we see, oh, there it is, persistent dark side, you know. And I think that there is something about, it turns out like that in a solar age, the lunar feminine is actually the invisible environment of that age. And, And, you know, I had, I don't think we talked about this last time. Um, I had a series of UFO encounters in 2006 where the beings that I saw, which in my investigations around these events, I think are basically fairy. Like they weren't, they didn't Mm, appear to be craft, you know, they didn't, they seemed bioluminescent, transparent creatures of some kind that were swimming around in the sky. And they were clearly taking interest in the moonlight and like dancing in it and bathing in it. And I'll just throw this one on top of it because this is a truly kind of through the looking glass thing. If you are willing to open your mind to the possibility of this strangeness. I read this book a couple of years ago called Who Built the Moon? Oh, yeah. And have have you guys read this one at all? I've been thinking about reading it because I heard on a podcast somebody going through some of the arithmetic some of the the math of it which if any of that stuff is true i mean i'm almost innumerate i'm a typical stupid humanities person with no mathematical knowledge so i have no way of figuring out whether that stuff is real but if it is it's pretty uncanny so examples here. please I, yeah. yeah so yeah. examples include and see for me this is my thing it's like listeners Please know that I've spent 15 years studying the philosophy of science and like experimental design and the history of science and the fallibility of knowledge and the the social construction of the fact. And I think of myself as a very rigorous person, but when I'm confronted by what I'm about to tell you, I'm looking at the dark side of the moon here, right? So what we have is that the moon is the same apparent size in the sky as the sun. Yeah. Right. At arm's length, you know, you can hold them out. They're both the size of the same coin. And that's how we get the total solar eclipse. And yet the moon's orbit is decaying. It has never been in the 4.6 billion year history of this planet, the same size as the sun until there were human beings standing on the ground to talk about it. And but, you know, that's (laughs) that's that's weird. Weirder is the fact that the ratio, the reciprocal ratio between these two objects is a whole number in the decimal system, that the moon is precisely one four hundredth the diameter and one four hundredth the distance of the sun at this exact time. Weirder still is that the lunar day is 27.935 Earth days long. The lunar diameter is 27.935% that of Earth. So to the thousandths place in a decimal system. I mean, and these little things like this, and then there's there's more. Like the people, I forget her name, the, the woman whose computer models were used to argue for this notion that the moon was created by a massive meteor impact early in the life of Earth. You know, that that's the origin of the moon. That's how it got here. It wasn't a captured object. Um, you know, it, it wasn't slowly accreted. It was this catastrophic impact. 
But this woman, according to this book anyway, claims that she was never really confident in the math, that she kind of fudged the computer model to make it work, and that people don't want to hear it. That people don't want to hear that the fact is that we, mm. the most confident versions of a story that we have about how the moon got here in the first place the scientists who came up with them are themselves not confident about that you know that why that, that it's that it's disturbing it's troubling to them that they had to fudge the evidence as badly as they did to get the models and it wasn't just her it was like there was another there was another research team that they mentioned i remember i so, think i lost you though they fudged the numbers that were showing what what were that were showing numbers? that were showing a computer model of the moon forming from a, a, a meteor oh. hitting the early planet, and then all of the pieces spray out into an orbit where they form a moon instead of a ring. Right, right. And they were basically saying to form to get it to form a moon instead of a ring, or to get it to form a moon instead of all those pieces just falling back to Earth or escaping completely, just took such extraordinary fudging on their on yeah. their part. At any rate, there's something about us landing on the moon and then basically since 1969 you can kind of call that the uh you know through the looking glass period where we're we went from prematurely declaring our victory by covering london park in a crystal dome to persisting far beyond the actual end of modernity in some sense by planting this flag and, and declaring our dominance of the lunar mysteries so the moon is uh, fundamental to the undoing of the glass age, I think. And that's that's a piece of it. And I'm reminded of that last line from uh, those interview clips in Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd. At the very, very end mm. of the record, he says, there is no dark side of the moon, really. As a matter of fact, it's all dark. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> well, and that's why, again, that's like that whole piece ended up in the future is indistinguishable from magic for that reason and you guys talk about this like seemingly every episode of the show that you push through far enough and it disproves itself you know that the modern project is its own undoing right and so i think that there's uh, something something glorious about that although like you said it's like there is no dark side it's all dark like suddenly we yeah. end up in this space where the glass that we're producing again for the first time in hundreds of years is opaque yeah. You know, it's like ceramic fiberglass stuff that we're using to build cars or whatever. It's not, you know, we're not looking through it. Right. There's nothing to look through at anymore because even the looking through only reveals the darkness of what we can't see, you know, of those parts <laughs> of it we can't, you know, which is why the whole moon is dark in the end. Uh, some reason this is making me think of something that occurred to me when I was reading both of the pieces that we are looking at this week there's something strongly McLuhan-ish I find about the way that you're thinking about the the age of glass and and I'm saying that like it's a good thing I love McLuhan something that McLuhan was about was a shift from a more kind of oculocentric if that is the word I'm looking for to a more ear-dominated experience of the sensorium so very briefly you know McLuhan argued that there's something he called sense ratios, that there's a sort of ratio of use between our senses, between sight and hearing and touch and taste and so on, um, that perhaps unsurprisingly would say, like, we probably use our sense of smell a lot less than our Australopithecine ancestors did. And his argument was that the great thing about the technology of writing 
And this power of writing is then multiplied in the Gutenberg era and with the advent of printing is that it facilitates a shift away from the ear and towards the eye. And he thinks a lot about the particular characteristics of vision. This has been argued against by a lot of people in sound studies, notably Jonathan Stern, who went to extremes trying to argue that hearing can possess entirely opposite values. But if you go with what McLuhan said for a moment, he said, well, you know, hearing is inclusive and it's immersive. We don't have earlids. You know, you can't block out a loud noise unless you stick your fingers in your ears, whereas you can close your eyes to, I don't know, a horrifying spectacle. Uh, our ears are perceiving a kind of 360 degrees immersive reality that you are always already a part of. Hearing, from this point of view, permits of no real distance. It doesn't permit a figure ground way of thinking. It tends to work against what we've called in this conversation a representationalist style of thought where you think about things always as being images projected onto other things. For example, just walking around, if you think about, if you imagine there's a little guy inside your skull who's pulling all the levers and like, I don't know, making your legs work while you're walking or whatever, you can imagine that everything that that little guy is seeing is projected through the double windows of your eyes. And you know, the, the consequences, according to McLuhan, of a sort of visually oriented set of sense ratios, you know, a world where everything is put in terms of visual information is going to be a world of private property. It's going to be a world of segmented, discrete parts, because the analytical separation that vision always performs on an environment is going to become the dominant way of I don't know, just experiencing the world. So, you know, McLuhan would say that a lot of what we call modernity or a lot of what we think of as characteristic of modernity is in fact a consequence of this shift in sense ratios, this way that we perceive things. Okay, so to get back to this idea of the glass age and your particular way of writing about it, you have a great line also in the same piece that I quoted before, you're talking about all of the million and one glass things that we interact with in the course of a day, you write, as if to literalize all the spheres we thought were holding stars in place and aren't, but we are still enamored with the notion. And I love this idea that, you know, just as we used to imagine these silent moving glass spheres in the sky, we've imminentized that. I like the idea that here we're imminentizing this very old idea except now everything is sort of encased in glass. Each one of these celestial glass orbs has been brought down to Earth. Now, if I were thinking in straight lines, I would be like, well, this surely would be the apotheosis of that ocular centricity that McLuhan was going on about. Surely this would be the time of the maximum analytical separation of our environment, all of the psychological processes that McLuhan diagnosed as a result of mass literacy, of print literacy, surely that would be simply accelerated to the next level. Except, actually, all the, the totally connected information technology, all of which is enabled by glassware, everything that we're perceiving through screens of glass, 
all of this stuff brings about a cultural condition that actually seems closer to McLuhan's imagining of a reborn auditory imaginary than anything that actually existed in McLuhan's own time. All this stuff he said was maybe going to happen with the TV actually happened with the internet. I teach McLuhan. I regularly have students read The Medium is the Massage, that kind of experimental little paperback, which I actually think is a brilliant little book. And it's funny, alone of all the various theoretical thinkers that I might throw at them, McLuhan seems to be the one that just connects because it just seems like common sense to them. It's the internet. McLuhan somehow was writing about that stuff before it happened. And yet, okay, so how do we get to this point where when we reach the absolute omnipresence of glass, the omnipresence of lenses, that the thing that the lens metaphor denotes, looking at stuff, seeing things through these multiple perspectives that to some extent you can pick and choose, how is it that that seems to have reversed into something quite different? And yet related to it. Awesome. Yes. So, okay. On Richard Doyle, who gave a seminar online a few years ago about the sort of mystical interpretation of the writings of Philip K. Dick. And in that webinar, he talked about how one surveillance camera suggests another because the evolution of sense organs and intelligence is this entropic runaway ratcheting phenomenon where by creating a sense you create a blind spot like again like the dark side of the moon right like you know that there's a blind spot where your optic nerve connects to your retina so somewhere in garages all over the world are these like insane transhumanist biohackers trying to figure out how to get rid of it yet in doing that like this is the problem with funding military surveillance because you can't roll it back Every new scanner that we install at airports just creates some new opportunity to sneak something through in a new way. And so the horizon keeps moving around us as we move on this, this sphere. And so the dark side always stays on the other side. But as we become more and more omniscient, the coastline of what we know we don't know actually grows exponentially faster than what we know. So it ends up tearing away at this accelerating pace where screens suddenly, we thought we were like, oh, all of the access to all of the stuff in the world. And it's like, no, I still want more. I need more information faster. And so you end up with a push past the sufficiency of the merely visual into, you know, like I remember it was around the time that I was starting to think about this stuff that video really took over the web around five years ago. It was like, no, this is a clear moment where all of the social media platforms are going to start prioritizing video because it's easier to capture people's attention when you've got the image and the sound. And like out of that space came the typographic, you know, the moving texts in all these videos because people had to mute them. And so it's like you're still trying to get two layers of information on a merely visual feed. And that was around the time I saw a guy give a talk about this, and he was talking about it in terms of the evolution of language. Where he's talking about animated type being this thing where our symbols have themselves complexified as our need for symbols has become more and more complex. 
I just had Onyx Ashanti on Future Fossils, and this guy has 3D printed this crazy cybernetic suit that he uses to make music with his entire body, like a Buteau dancer with like an EEG headset on and like things like scanning his eyes and a little breath controller in his mouth. And he's just aching to get as much signal through as many different degrees of freedom as possible. And it results in things like the haptic vest designed by David Eagleman's lab in Houston, this neuroscientist who came up with this way of hot mapping tactile data from your touching your torso to a blind people being able to make a visual image of their environment. And the haptic vest appeared in an episode of Westworld recently where the guys were using it to detect where the robot hosts were in the building, the security guards could feel the host's location. And then there was a work of science fiction in the Project Hieroglyph compilation. I think it was Carl Schroeder's piece where he was talking about putting a haptic vest on a politician and then leading them into the woods of British Columbia to make a point about conservation because the politician could feel every radio ID'd animal in the woods and like all of the sensors on the trees and really had like this new sense of the forest almost like a, you know, a technologically revived sort of quasi-indigenous sense of being immersed in that you know, McLuhan audio kind of way, tactilely mm. immersed in the, in the woods. And how that kind of immersive and immediate experience was used as, was basically weaponized for positive political gain, you know, for conservation, to get people to feel immediately and thus care about something that's invisible to them. You know, so I think that that's the answer to your question is it's like we're like chomping at the bit to get more than we'll fire hose into our eyeballs and that it's like, (laughs) you know, they're like looking for every every way to like start mapping regions of your skin to like do like tactile screens that send you, you know, like the, the phantom cell phone buzz in your leg when your phone's not in your pants is like just the beginning of this totally hot mapped human body as you know n-dimensional sensor io thing that's that's so interesting yeah it's interesting because okay so McLuhan's critique i know McLuhan was a lot more ambiguous than some people would make him out to be he he didn't make um major value judgments as to which age is better and that sort of thing however he was a daily communicant like a loyal member of the roman catholic church and he he said that his his vision was fundamentally religious but he didn't let that bleed through in the writings too much. Uh, and that was, that was a good decision on his part, obviously. So if we look at the shift from, let's say, medieval or pre-modern to modern as a shift from auditory to visual, and now we need to move back to some kind of tribal auditory mode. I, I don't know. I love McLuhan as well. I don't know. I, don't, I just reread Henry Bergson's uh, Creative Evolution. And he traces back the great mistake of Western philosophy he traces it way, like much further back to the Greeks. And having read a lot of Greek philosophy, I would say that the, the Greeks were intensely visual in their choice of mm. metaphors and how they thought. So maybe I think that maybe McLuhan's talking about how most people live, but certainly Greek philosophers were, they had a visual culture. And Bergson traces the great mistake of Western metaphysics back then. And he basically argues in Creative Evolution and other works that that mistake is still at work through Kepler and Galileo all the way to the present. So that basically, according to Bergson, we are not even getting to first base with science to this day when it comes to actually knowing reality. Consciousness has no access to reality for Bergson 
like rational consciousness, intellect. Uh, it has access to slices of reality that it then organizes, arranges in a model and then mistakes for reality. So it goes way back. And um, so Zeno's paradox, for example. So Zeno famously argued that movement was impossible because Achilles could never catch up with the turtle because Achilles has to move through an infinity of points on its way to the turtle and it has to be in each point. Therefore, it can't move. Well, to this day, there's no real mathematical model that allows us to conceive of movement without having this trajectory with these points along the way. Like the actual moment of movement eludes rational thinking altogether. So, mm. but, and the problem that I see today is that what Bergson called an intuitive apprehension of duration as such, of reality at the most intimate real level, where knowing a white light doesn't involve breaking it up into colors, but being a white light. That's what Bergson would say. You have to be something by an act of what he called an act of sympathy. You have to become something to know it. That's the only real way of knowing reality. And it becomes very mysterious because at that level, at the Bergson level, time really is indistinguishable from movement and change itself. So because of the success of modern science and modern technology, it's becoming increasingly hard for us to connect with duration, as Bergson saw it, to the point where wearing a haptic suit is a good way of feeling the forest. It's better than actually being in the forest because we don't trust the real. We trust some simulation of the real. That to us is what confirms it. It's almost like the echo that confirms that you heard something. It has to echo artificially for you to know that it was there. Well, it's echoing off of other people's minds. I think this is the critical key. It's not maybe the best way of answering this particular problem, but when you can't trust your own senses, who do you ask, right? An expert or like, you know, it's like, well, but the, I just imagined a, a peer review jury uh, for, to published my, uh, my essay on the glass age. How convenient. But th this, this <laughs> thing about, at least if you're wearing a haptic vest, then you know you're not just tripping that you know you're not just deluding yourself into thinking that you can feel the presence of a moose quietly walking through the woods 50 yards away. You know, you have like some experts confirmation of that. And in a way, it remains an insufficient and yet intuitive place for a grasping logical mind to go. I think that gets into some of the stuff that will remain in this infamous lost episode about the distributed nature of the self in this time that like when you start relying on other people to help you make sense or other entities rather of any kind to help you make sense of a sensorium that you don't trust then you're planting your feet somewhere outside of where the sort of conventional modern self actually resides you know and so you know to weave that through with the McLuhan thing the identity of somebody living in an auditory age or a tactile age or whatever compared to a visual age, the identity is embedded rather than emergent from or discrete from in mm. some sense. What's distributed are representations. And of course, yes, the physical body is distributed in time and space. You're not an actual cursor, you know, like you're not this totally discrete pebble so you are a system or as whitehead would say a society right that's what you are but you are a society and you are a body 
And without a body, you're not going to fucking no haptic suit will help you, you know? Well, right. But like, where does yeah. the body stop? Because because when right. you're in a haptic suit, then really you're just like you guys just said, you're, you are just sort of reinventing the wheel. But you get back to that Gregory Bateson issue of the blind man's cane being an extension of his nervous system. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. yeah. And that like... If you're where, using where, a, does, where in the cane does his nervous system end? Right. Somewhere and, in the middle. And he's feeling he's feeling the truck roll by on the street outside. I mean, th- th- you don't even need a cane. It's your feet on the ground feeling this thing happen 50 feet away. So, yeah, but how is that different from saying I put a security camera outside my house and I'm looking at the screen from my my paranoid bunker bedroom? It's and, not. And it's not it's, different. It's not okay. Yeah, I know. But then it becomes a metaphorical extension of the self because all it is, is you're just using a tool. I mean, in that case, we've always been extended. I mean, a horseman was uh, the horse was part of his self. Yeah. And yes. that's that, but, that, that would be McLuhan's point. He calls he defines a technology, any technology as an extension of man. Or yes, he would say an extension of human beings. But it's not um, an extension of you, Phil Ford. It's not oh, an extension but, but, of oh, you, Michael Garfield. That's but, where existentialism but is, begins. But this is where I disagree. Because we do actually, you know, if if, if a, you take a cell phone away from a teenager and they like go into like withdrawal, you know, Convulsions. Or, well, I mean, the actual, there's, a, there's a, a shadow essay in this conversation that I wrote that I put up on Medium also called Being Every Drone, which is about the future of virtual reality and telepresence. Because Jaron Lanier, who basically ought to be credited as the inventor of virtual reality, his whole thing was using it for educational purposes. And you mentioned this earlier, to to be the color rather than to merely observe it. Right. He really thought that in the future, because of the plasticity of the brain's own body map, because of what ironically we call the homunculus, you know, which is not actually a little guy and they're driving you around, but is your miniaturized map it's like the the hub where you have you know everyone's homunculus if you were to actually draw it out has like huge lips and huge fingers and huge genitals and like relatively tiny torso because we don't have that many nerve endings it's like priapus Um, but it's 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 the hub where all these things meet right and that hub is so flexible that it's very easy using haptic feedback or using even just an ordinary video game controller that you teach people like special button mappings, it's very easy to convince people to enter a virtual space where they have like and have and control an additional set of limbs. And so like Jaron Lanier's whole thing was you can learn about lobsters by becoming a lobster. And just because it has such a very different body type from you, that the human brain is crazy and flexible enough that. that yes, but it always has been. The, well, the, the yeah, lobster totally. fisherman, nothing new. Nothing a lobster new. fisherman has always been able to become a lobster. That's how you catch lobsters. That's, well, yeah, that's so, what's going on but, always at the right. Yeah. But but there's like the mechanical action of a thing that's like what's going on, and then there's that being sort of in the front, like foregrounded, appreciated, understood. Like it's not necessarily phenomenally the case that people you know right now regard the cell phone as a, a part of their body but it will definitely be that way in another 20 years and it definitely was not that way 20 years ago you know and i think that that's it's just a shift in our seeing of things that i'm talking about i don't think it's right 
no, you know, no, the exactly. Fact that you and I, the fact that you and I agree that this is how it is is actually, yeah. I think, evidence of I, no, 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 no. I, yeah. I, I, it's just a point of distinction between saying between what the hypermoderns are saying that some kind ontologically that man is changing or humanity is changing into something else. I don't think that's the case at all. Fully. I think there's an ahistorical stratum that what it is to be human that that changes, but much much slower. And you can't change that with technology. You just can't. I mean, the, uh, fundamentally, the experience of a human being as an individual today is essentially the same as the experience of the fucking the, the ape that touched the black monolith. That's the human experience. It's that facing that horizon. The shape and features of the horizon are constantly changing, but not the horizonness of the horizon. And to face a horizon from a center called a self, that is the human experience. That precedes all of this fucking intellectual stuff about how the self is changing and evolving. When McLuhan says man, technology is an extension of man, he's not experiencing that at the level of the self. At the level of the self, you know that your cell phone isn't you. I, I'm starting to sound like as too simplistic, but the point is that there's something that transcends or that subsumes this type of intellectual modeling. That, but then that, again, but then again, you have the VR-induced out-of-body experience. Like this all calls back to a mushroom trip I had in college where I was standing with my back to a meadow and my partner was standing with her back to the woods. And suddenly I slipped out of my own point of view and into hers. And I was seeing me, Michael, with the meadow behind me. And I think that a lot of what I'm saying in this conversation is inspired by that notion that like, Yes, there's always a point of view. And yes, in some sense, there's always a, you know, an identification to some degree with that point of view. It's called the soul, bro. Right. But, <laughs> but apparently my soul or whatever can slip out and there is some greater identity out of which, you know, whatever kind of definition I would have for my, myself is... I mean, and that's another layer to it, right? Which is the representational self right. is actually for sure created out of this net of interactions, you know, and that the representational self is smeared all over the place. But you can say that that's basically an accurate attempt at modeling what's actually going on. Because if I can see Michael through my partner's eyes, then the actual self isn't simply located either. No, but, 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 but the experience hardly negates the existence of a self. In fact, there's no better affirmation of the existence of a self than seeing yourself from another point of view. Or in the mirror. And, yeah, and knowing that you're not limited to what the representational self, the kind of small self, but there's a deeper singularity to what you are that's inextricable from the fact of experience. And that's what's affirmed in those moments, I find, because I've had similar moments while tripping. And I hardly came out of it with a sense that, oh, the self is an illusion. This or that definition of the self is an illusion because the real is indefinable, but the real inheres in this singular experience that I call myself. And that's where the birth, that's where existential philosophy is born. And that's why philosophy stops being a waste of time because philosophy starts being necessary when it starts to tell you how to live or to give you principles by which to live your life. And if, you, if your philosophy is actually telling you that all principles are illusory, and in fact, there is nothing going on, then your philosophy is basically 
just running away from the problem that gets people philosophizing to begin with. But all that's predicated, and that's why I believe in free will too, because it's all predicated on the, the absolute singularity of your personal experience as a creature in the universe. That's irreducible even to the body, yes, but that is nonetheless real, more real than anything. For some reason, I'm reminded of the title of a book by, I think it's Lon Milo Decat. Guy's written a lot about uh, Alistair Crowley's system of Thelema. He has a book, I think it's called, Yes, It's All in Your Head. You Just Have No Idea How Big Your Head Is. <laughs> and, and that line sort of returns to my memory unbidden in this uh, conversation that like, you know, perhaps there would be some basis for an agreement here to say, yes, it's all a matter of the soul. The soul is indispensable. We just don't know what souls are. We don't know how big your soul is. If you say, well, the soul is the, the cursor point. I know you're not saying this, JF, but if you were to imagine some limitation on what the soul is or can be, and you say, it's this cursor point. It's the singular point of view from which a horizon becomes perceptible, then you are already placing a prior claim and limit on what the soul is and can be. The soul, it seems to me, is entirely, at least, it doesn't in any way cancel out my idea of what a soul potentially is to imagine that it is something that could see first through Michael's eyes and then through Michael's partner's eyes looking back at Michael. That no. doesn't seem hard for me to imagine. No, that, that was my um, point, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with this. I, I'm with this. I would add that if anything is changing, it is simply that perceiving the self as distributed in this way is, I think, changing in its value as an evolutionarily adaptive response to society as we move from one media environment to the other. And that's that's all I'm saying, really, is that certain angles on this are rewarded because of... Absolutely. And it, it reveals new affordances and it makes us intuit... It enables us to think things that we intuit without knowing it, without being aware of it. For example, you put on the haptic suit and you start to feel and then your yourself becomes distributed over an area, right? Well, yourself is, as we just said, you, you got it through mushrooms. You don't need a haptic suit. You knew yourself was distributed across uh, Probably easier to space. just wear the suit. Probably, probably. <laughs> but the point is that that the the self is distributed. So in a way, these technologies are enable us are enabling us to come to awareness or to dissolve a certain limiting concept of the self. So I agree that mm. as heuristic tools, these things are they're opening up new vistas of possibility. However, I would argue against anyone who said that when you put on the haptic suit, yourself is distributed. Then you take it off, and yourself becomes what it was before. That's totally I don't. Yeah, right. So it's basically showing you something, which is kind of um, who was it that said that every technology is uh, was a Freud said that every new technology is an attempt by humans to um, realize some mythical wish, some great wish fulfillment they had. Yeah, uh, that humans want to fly. So we make up airplanes and blah, 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 blah. But the point is that these technologies are actually enabling us to map out wider territories of the self, more complex and subtle ones. So that if we see if the technology really is a tool and we keep it at the level of a tool that serves us instead of reducing ourselves to tools serving it, then they become instruments of contemplation 
or even instruments of, they are already instruments of creation for creating the world but if we mistake the experience of say a VR trip with uh, if we mistake that for the actual nature of the world which my fleshware doesn't enable me to experience then you're actually you actually end up reinforcing an old idea of the limitation. It's it becomes Gnosticism. It becomes yeah. a kind of transhuman Gnosticism that hates matter, and and you can feel that often in the transhumanist movement. This kind of hatred of the limitations of matter and wetware and all that, all those terms, right? Totally. You are yeah. and and you're right that like, it's it's like the same thing you get in between the monists and the dualists. Non-duality is neither of those. It's no more accurate to say that it's you know, the, the monist view than the dualist view or vice versa. They're a complementary pair. So, and it's, it's, digital dualism has the same sort of thing smacking about it that, you know, the notion that the real world is somehow more valid than virtual reality, what we call the real world habitually, even I still call like the, the so-called so real world is a conflation of the apparent thing and the actual thing yeah technology is part of the real world in right words. so the inherent to the like the project of enlightenment whenever anyone says i'm enlightened you know and you're like oh just being around that person reveals i i won't give this guy's name but there was a guy that was terrorizing my burning man camp in 2013 he was just absorbing disciples and it because this guy <laughs> was there as part of a uh presentation group that was working on people with no ego and this guy had gone through a brain scanner and was a, a subject of this research population that had been found to have no activity in the default mode network and thus experiencing no phenomenal sense of self okay so this guy i, I think people smell an egoless person and they just sort of magnetize around them it doesn't matter what that person's remaining problems may be. And I ended up in this two hour debate with this guy because I couldn't watch him just hoovering up groupies. You know, he was he was trying to like lay this uh, sort of dominance power game stuff on me by having me do math problems while I was maintaining eye contact with him to prove that I was more distracted than he was. You know, which like to prove that to move my eyes while I'm trying to answer a math puzzle was somehow evidence that I was less aware, less awakened of a being. And I just I got to this place with it where I was like, if you are awakened, then why does it bother you that I'm not? It's, it's the whole Mahayana uh, Theravada yeah. split, right? Where you're like, how can you continue to delude yourself in thinking you're going to get off the wheel? You know, or that you have gotten off the wheel when it's like there's no one left to get the stone out of that guy's shoe. You know, like the ego is still in there pestering him. It's just in the apparent form of somebody else. And so he'll he'll never, ever, ever be able to get it. You know, like he'll yeah. never be somehow able to get I it. Somehow I feel like the conclusion of the story is, and then you realize that your wallet was gone. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, the worst. It's just like every time I encounter somebody who's like, I'm enlightened. It's just like, check your wallet. <laughs> I, I, do, I, don't, I don't trust those motherfuckers one little bit. No, the, I think for, uh, apropos to this conversation, I think the accurate finish to that story would be, and then I realized that it was just me arguing with myself in virtual reality. <laughs> Right. <laughs> it was my own reflection this whole time. 
now I know what that guy's problem was. Man, that's a whole other conversation is enlightenment and the development of something called enlightenment science. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Or contemplative The contemplative Sam Harris science. the Sam Harris thing where through meditation you can through meditation you can become the kind of person that Sam Harris approves of. Right. <laughs> Well, so this actually, this is sort of the bow tie, I think, for for this. Um, there is, I, I just had Dennis McKenna on Future Fossils, or I just recorded the, the oh, talk. Cool. And we talked about how the scientific method changes when you're tripping balls, basically, right? Like how, when you're in these spaces where, like we've been talking about, where the, the sort of normal categories get confused and therefore you can't set up the same kind of clean experiment you know cause and effect get murkier or more omnidirectional you know you can't repeat the same experiment because the experiment includes the observer and the observer is changing you know the scientist it's themselves is implicated in the conspiracy and so the the whole issue of reproducibility is totally bonkers and i think that that's where we sort of wrap up the glass age or that's where the glass age has done its job sort of is in to what you were saying earlier that we get to this place where you know if we can keep these things as tools if we can keep them from dominating us and turning us into machine pets is so totally the death fear modernist bias kind of a statement because the fact is that it still assumes a sort of human priority in the matrix of causal relationships around technologies that they are just merely an extension of us and that we're not co-implicated in some sort of non-dual scheme or like at least symbiosis that we have to elevate them to our ontological status to even consider that which the modern mind finds totally appalling and so like the glass age is then you know this the reason that ends up in the essay about how the future is indistinguishable from magic is because glass eventually produces the magic mirror and the magic mirror with the guy inside it that answers your questions and maybe like grants your wishes and that artificial intelligence as i guess probably a better apotheosis of the glass age than apollo 11 but you know less showboaty in some sense is where science finds itself all the way back into being this like priesthood worshiping the ineffable black box mystery of some religious relic it's like they gather around the server farm now to petition it with questions that these people cannot understand the answers to you know right. that science is now augmented science and so we're never we can't go back to this notion that we're like we're even going to understand the new facts that we discover you right. Know, so they've ceased to be. So maybe technology will become a, a useless. It won't even be good as a tool. That doesn't change your experience or mine or Phil's. We have to get up in the morning. That's the real question of philosophy. Oh, it and, becomes and, more yeah. useful. It becomes exponentially more useful, but exponentially more mysterious and like unknowable at the same time. Well, everything's mysterious and unknowable. And technology is becoming that. In other words, technology is receding into the pervasive background of nature, right, mm. what's been called nature. And we have to just deal with that. And then we wake up from the, the crazy trip of our infatuation with it. And we go, oh, fuck, the, the tether's cut. And off it goes on its own back into the... And then we're left 
oh, we're right back to where we were before the glass age started. What am I going to do with my fucking day? Why am I living this life? What is the point? And that's the real question. And these things can become distractions from that. The real issue that's it's the real thing that's at stake in uh, in thought, which I think is all about retaining somehow or being honest with yourself about the singularity that you are. And the only reason I'm, the only reason I'm insisting on that is because that's what I get from Bergson. That's what I think Bergson is calling our attention to. Forget all this metaphysical modeling. It's great, but it's only great if it serves some kind of existential imperative that you discover in yourself, you know, and maybe that's just totally beside the point. You know, I, I didn't want to derail the thing, but it's just that what tends to get lost in a lot of discussions about, you know, when I listen to people talking about hypermodernity and all that, what gets lost. And the reason why people like Jordan Peterson are so successful is because they're fucking dealing with the real question. And how do we bring this type of thinking onto that plane of existential fear and existential hope and what does it give us at that level, right? And that's kind of like the real challenge. I don't know. I mean, maybe I misunderstand you, but I think it's real simply answered by like following the money, right? And being like, oh, this entire conversation happened as an adaptive response of my neuroanatomy to this particular surround, right? So right. in that sense, again, back to you know the Rich Doyle, Gary Weber thing about the self having sort of outlived its evolutionary relevance. I think they're calling the shot a little too soon, but I do think that there is something about the, you know, the self as we're articulating it here, having historically, you know, your ahistorical self is nonetheless from another, a complementary, non-competitive, perhaps view, mutualistic, integrable view also an evolutionary object and so something else will come in sooner or later to replace it to be more appropriate and what what comes to replace it will in some sense be an answer to an always already question and will in some sense still be true to that particular existential issue and say it won't be a new thing it will be a thing that has always been here that is like you know, opens up and rediscovered or matures. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.